0: Hello there and welcome to the Lancet HIV podcast for the March issue. I'm Peter Hayward, Editor-in-Chief of the Lancet HIV and today I'm talking to Oliver Ratman at Imperial College London UK and Joseph Kagai at Rakai Health Sciences Programme in Uganda. I'm going to be talking to Oliver and Joseph about a study on HIV transmission flow between HIV hotspots and surrounding communities in Rakai. This study was published online in January and is included in the March issue of the Lancet HIV. Oliver and Joseph are both authors of the paper. I mean, the name Rakai will be well known to many of our listeners because of the the amount of HIV research that has come from there over the years and the insights that the area has provided to the HIV community. Um, Joseph, can you tell us a little bit about the region and explain why it has become so important?
1: Well, thank you very much, Peter, and thank you for having us uh, here. And it's good to talk about Rakai and to discuss the findings um, of our our Lancet HIV paper. Just to talk about Rakai. Rakai is a region located in uh, south-central Uganda and uh, shares a border with Tanzania on the south and Lake Victoria on the east and has a population of over half a million residents. The region was really the epicenter of the HIV epidemic. Uh, the first cases of HIV in Uganda were first described in this region back in the early 80s. Uh, it is really one of the regions with the highest burden of HIV in Uganda. So, whereas the national HIV prevalence in Uganda is about 6% among persons ages 15-49 years, uh, Rakai has, you know, prevalence you know, up to about 13 to 14%. So that makes it really one of the highest uh, HIV burden districts. So really what makes Rakai interesting um, yeah, um, in terms of the epidemic in Rakai? Uh, first of all, I said the burden is very, very high compared to other regions here in Uganda. Mm-hmm. But I think one of the interesting things about the epidemic in Rakai is the fact that it is um, one of the very few well-studied epidemics worldwide. So, in the Rakai region, the Rakai Health Sciences Program, using the Rakai Community Cohort Study, has, uh, for over 30 years, studied the epidemic in Rakai, uh, providing very important data on the evolution of the epidemic in the context of uh, the different interventions that have been done and has also provided information on drivers of the epidemic. And the cohort has been used to test various interventions against the HIV. Mm-hmm. As you know, one notable intervention was a male medical circumcision. And the inf- information in Rakai has been used worldwide to inform the HIV prevention and treatment policies and to model the course of uh, HIV epidemic. But I must say that one of the major interesting uh, features of uh, the epidemic in Rakhine is really the heterogeneity of the epidemic by geographic and uh, various uh, subgroups
0: mm-hmm. or
1: subpopulations. So we have observed <clears throat> that um, you know, the HIV is not really homogeneous in the Raka'i region. Yeah. There are areas that are highly burdened. And one of those uh, are communities along the shores of Lake Victoria, where we have observed um, HIV prevalence is averaging around 40%, you know, much higher than uh, the rest of the inland communities in Raka'i. We also have trading centers located along the main roads, you know, which also have much higher HIV prevalence compared to the more rural um, and agrarian communities. There's also lots of heterogeneity by subgroups. Uh, one that also stands out are recent migrants, uh, recent migrants communities. So recent meaning that these migrants uh, came to communities within the last two years. So we discovered that their risk of HIV acquisition is almost twice as high compared to longer-term residents. Right. And uh, we also discovered that they are also less likely to be covered uh, with uh, combination HIV interventions. So they are less likely to also access services. And that's really a big challenge uh, that uh, comes with this heterogeneity.
0: Of course, there are many other
1: interesting heterogeneities by gender, age groups, and occupations. Uh, We see that um, the HIV epidemic is disproportionately uh, higher among women, of course, compared to men. And uh, with women 20 to 24 years, uh, really carrying a much higher burden. We have sex workers, truck drivers, discordant couples, who also carry a much higher risk of infection.
2: You know, in some of the, the communities, we were observing uh, some of the, the highest HIV prevalence estimates that you know that were just ever measured, like worldwide. Like, in, um, you know, if you look at women aged um, uh, 30, 35, uh, the estimated HIV prevalence is, is above. About fifty percent. I mean, these are um, really uh, quite remarkable figures yeah.
0: in, in terms of borrowing. D- I'm just interested a little bit, actually. I mean, while the n- the name obviously Rakai is going to be very familiar to to, as I said, very familiar to many of the people listening to the podcast. The actual sort of the area and what it's like won't be. Is it sort of is it easy to access these different uh, communities, or are there sort of you know simple problems and challenges posed by the terrain and the region and and the sort of communities themselves that sort of make it difficult to access these communities and work with them? The
1: ease of accessing the communities has also evolved over time. Uh So back in the early 80s, you know, it was much, much more difficult. When we started to do research in Rakhai, it was very difficult to access some of the communities um, including um, the, you know, the, the fishing villages that are really high, highly burdened. At the time, they were very difficult to, to access. The road network was was very, very. Uh, the terrain was really bad. The big potholes all along the way, and these are communities that are far off. They were far off, You know, you have to get. It takes about one and a half hours or two hours now to get to those communities from the inland communities. Yeah. But it used to take much, much longer to, to get there. And uh, you know, the road network uh, it, in other more rural agrarian communities was really terrible. Um, I must say there's been a number of improvements now with you know, the road network. And uh, they're much, uh, you know, they're easier to access now uh, than uh, before. But still the fishing communities, uh, still the the terrain there is still much more difficult. It gets terrible when the rain season is on. These are not um, paved roads. So they are, as as you know, near the lake, you know, the the water gets all over the roads and the roads are impassable. So still they're very much more difficult to access at at this point in time yeah. yet now the population has increased in uh, in those communities due to a recent boom in the fishing industry in Uganda
0: yeah it's fascinating it's always important to think when you know sitting in an office in london publishing publishing the research to sort of it's important to think about and remember the the logistical issues uh, and difficulties of, of actually doing this in the field so that's great. Thank you so much for your insight into RAKAI and the assessing there, Joseph. I'm now going to come to uh, come to you, Oliver, to ask you a little bit about, more about the sort of the nitty-gritty of the study, perhaps. So in your study, you've linked phylogenetic data with the geographic data and the demographic data. So how did this allow you to describe the transmission flows in ways that previously you might not have been able to do?
2: Yeah, thanks, Peter. So, so that's right. So we, we indeed combined um, several data sources, and, and
0: methodologies in, in this particular
2: study. The, the primary aim of the study was to estimate the spatial transmission flows between high-prevalence communities and the inland low-prevalence communities in the car. And, and so we quickly discovered that this, there were several challenges to do that. So from a phylogenetic perspective, our, our starting point was that we sought to, to reconstruct past transmission events, and we wanted to use uh, HIV sequences that were isolated from our study participants in required for that. Um, now, now, it's important to keep in mind that any such event can't be reconstructed with, with certainty. So the main idea was that if we're able to reconstruct hundreds of such events, we um, will be powered to estimate transmission flow at the population. And, and you know, that general approach is you know, in line with many other studies. Um, yeah. And, and the first challenge that, that we encountered really was um, it related to how the, the virus was sequenced from infected individuals. Um, now, the, technically, the standard approach is to, to use what's called Sanger sequencing. And, and this returns one virus sequence per sample. So you can think about it as the consensus genome of all of the viral diversity that's captured in the virus and And so, for our protocol, we were you know and the, the funds we had we could sequence one sample per individual, so the standard approach gave us one sequence per individual. Now, in contrast, what we did is we used deep sequencing, and that gave us just by using the method, gave us thousands of sequences per individual, mm. and this richer data made possible to use our, our new phylogenetic inference software um, that we also developed. Um, And that has has greater capabilities. In particular, it allows you to directly estimate the direction of transmission between two individuals. It's important to to remember that um, the the deep sequence phylogenetics is not perfect at all. It's uh, it's just a tool to use. So for example, we don't have deep deep sequence data from all infected individuals. So the technology just can't be used to prove transmission at the individual level. We see many, many uh, female-female links, for instance, where we suspect there is a male partner in between and we just haven't sequenced. So so the technology can only be used to make inferences at the population level. And there have been several studies on this, many of them part of the You know, Thinking about the first challenge, our take-home message was that with the deep-sequence data, we couldn't not only estimate that person A and person B are somehow close in terms of the viral sequences. But instead, we could estimate that um, A was probably the source, or B was probably the source. And and these inferences provided direct evidence into the direction of transmission flow. Now, if I may, the the second challenge, um, so that's the second big part of the study, that related to mobility and migration. Um, And and that comes back to the setting in in Rakai. So to give you a sense of this, so nearly, we, we observed that nearly one third of the study population had migrated over a two-year period in between the 40 study communities that that we are observing and on the survey or into them, or wow. out. So, so migration is, is very common. But not only that. So, one of the remarkable observations was that 57% of the newly detected HIV cases were among inmigrants. So, so you get this idea that uh, or this expectation that that you know if you're thinking about new transmission chains in these communities we expected that they're frequently this from outside places. And then, you know, thinking about our study, thinking about reconstructing transmission events and estimating spatial flows. So practically speaking, this frequent migration implies that it's just not enough to know where person A and person B currently live. So we also have to know um, if they had recently migrated to their current place of residence and where they came from. And then we used that to, to obtain, if you, if you will, um, migration-adjusted transmission corrects. And I think this is one of the things where how this how this study is quite distinct from. So maybe to put things together, so we deep sequenced the virus from infected participants. And this allowed us to estimate directional transmission. Mm-hmm. And the second part was that we used household locations and migration data to correctly interpret these trans- directed transmission events. Um, in the context of this really extensive mobility
0: right so it's not just knowing where the infections are is only part of the story also you know you can also start to piece together where infections might have come from and 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 how people are moving around with, with hiv
2: yeah exactly so that's really the i think the key point to understand is like um, given that the whole population is dynamic, the, the source location isn't defined by the current residents, but by where the, the source partner actually acquired HIV.
0: In your study, you talk about hotspots. Can you explain what a hotspot is in this case? It's... So, you know, like
2: I think, like more generally, like uh, internationally, like, you have all these spatial mapping studies of HIV uh, across all of the saharan Africa, and mm-hmm. what you notice, and like, those have mentioned that already before. Is that you find these areas where where HIV prevalence is markedly higher than in, in, in the surrounding regions, and the name isn't probably fantastic, right. you know, who, who likes to live in a hotspot here? But um, the reality is like that there are these um, confined areas with very high HIV prevalence, and and you know, there's been a period where they've been dubbed as and, and if you're you know, thinking about our um, uh, Sali population in Rakai, so we do see that there is these very distinct communities along uh, Lake Victoria. And it's not just Rakai, so it's the more room to make. Um, and these are not very large populations. So we're talking about, so in Rakai districts, we, have, we are estimating these are um, in the tens of thousands, 15,000 individuals who, who live there. Um, so it's relatively small, but very high um, HIV prevalence on average 40%, and in, in some subgroups, female um, um, females age 30-35. Um, mm. I, I believe the numbers are
0: 62%. You'd find that these hotspots aren't necessarily sources of infection, but rather sort of where people with infection have for whatever reason ended up.
2: <laughs> yeah, you're taking away the conclusions in a way. So so when we when we started the study, so, you, know, you probably didn't see some of our you know, initial uh, slides or presentations, but we actually hypothesized the opposite. So, yeah. so we were very surprised. Um, and, and our findings really turned upside down what um, we had expected to see. And, and so to give this a bit more context, so um, in, in 2013, the, uh, the Ugandan Ministry of Health classified the fishing communities as priority populations for intensified combination prevention services. And the, the rationale for intensifying services in fishing communities was the high prevalence. So, so there just literally, there just wasn't any care there. Like them. And Joseph mentioned how difficult it was to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, so these people in communities were in, in, in real need for services, uh, better care and prevention. Um, and, and then in addition, the idea was that the fishing population, they were believed to be active as core groups and, and sustain the epidemic because of the high HIV prevalence in the more broadly. And that's, you know, you know, generally speaking about infectious disease, looking at malaria, TB, HIV, that's a common theory that, that high HIV, high prevalence areas, they drive disease spread more broadly. And many modeling analysis supported this theory in the past. So in doing the study, we also had this kind of more, you know, this bigger aim based on this theory. So we initially wanted to uh, quantify how much the broader population could benefit from the intensified interventions in the high prevalence fishing communities. Now, during the study, it, it, it actually became apparent that there are key factors that underpin this theory of infection control, and that's population size and mobility. So if a hotspot is small, the actual number of infections from there they may just simply be dwarfed by the number of infections in the neighboring area. So it's just a matter here. And then the other part is like if the migration flows are in the opposite direction, so into hotspots rather than out of them, there's just little opportunity for the virus to spread in the other direction. And, and so in Vercai, what we observed is that both factors are there and they work against the standard theory that predicts that infection flows from hotspots below So there are these, these fishing communities that are relatively small. But there's, and there is substantial, uh, substantially more migration into them. And on top of this, what we also found is that, that the, uh, the in-migrants, to the fishing communities they have substantially higher HIV prevalence compared to in-migrants to, to other destinations. So it's not only that they're small and there's lots of migration into them. There's also this preferential migration of HIV infected individuals into fishing communities. And so we believe it's really these three factors that underpin um you know our findings why the h i v prevalent fishing communities are are uh, locally used since and not sources of transmission
0: trials. fascinating finding, and it's sort of it, it helps to explain the the somewhat counterintuitive nature of your findings in the study, and also I guess that has um that has important messages for for prevention efforts in Uganda at sort of the population level actually maybe targeting these hotspots with very high prevalence isn't necessarily going to achieve what was hoped.
2: I, I think in general, I you know, I think it's important to note that, you know, since this the study that's just, just coming out now, since the study has been conducted, the, the, the Rugger Health Sciences Program has, has rapidly scaled up HIV prevention and treatment services in 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 these fishing communities. Right. And it it has, you know, changed the, the landscape so remarkably. Um, there's been um, substantial declines in, in new HIV cases in these communities, just as adding to the health and well-being of the people who are living there. So, you know, these in, intensified interventions have real benefits. Um, and, and so with, the, with our study, I think we, we want to primarily caution that, you know, this theory of, of infection flow and this idea that geographic targeting itself have knock-on effects, that may not necessarily be true. And, and we need to think more holistically, right. you know, not, not just focus only on the fishing communities, right. but, but
0: you know, also the other things. The other communities around them that interact yeah. with those communities and where there's population flow.
2: Yeah, I'm just kind of realizing also like just the sheer population numbers, right? So yeah. we're talking about um, uh, uh, Joseph said, half a million of people, right? And then these fishing communities are in the tens of thousands. Yeah. Mm-hmm. against the other is very you shouldn't do that
1: well i wanted to say that the findings of uh, this paper of course do not make it less important in any way to uh, target and focus on these very high burdened uh, communities because mm. uh, we see there's a very huge you know need for services with such high hiv prevalence absolutely and it is eth- ethically very important that we do focus on them um, to, for, you know, for, to, to improve uh, their health. And indeed, we have, we have focused on these communities with the HIV services, scaling up um, ART and um, male circumcision. And we have seen very interesting results in terms of reducing new infections in those communities. So transmissions and acquisition of HIV within the communities. Uh, Within about five years, we have uh, observed over 50% decline in new uh, infections of of HIV by focusing the services there as well.
0: So then I'm just, uh, I guess, just going to come to um, my final question then, really. Obviously, RAKAI, an incredibly interesting situation. We've learned so much from studying RAKAI over the years and continue to have... These, you know, surprising and fascinating insights into the nature of HIV transmission and population flow um, from Rakai. But it's a pretty unique location in terms of its geography, dem- demography, and the history of the HIV research there. Do you think that your findings from Rakai in this study, in this present study, are likely to be generalizable to other settings? Thanks,
2: Peter. I think so. So this is obviously um, an important question. Um, it's you know in the absence of like much other data it's not easy to answer um, sure. i think one generalizable finding um from we from you know the continued work that uh, we've been doing in the is that the the migration networks are complex um and they are, and migration is common and and so so susan castle you know in her uh commentary on our paper has really nicely summarized that and uh, and in principle, you know, I agree with her that the, the strategies to, to end the HIV epidemic in, in sub-Saharan Africa, they will need to better account for, for population mobility and migration. Um, and that is, you know, that is something if you look at the um, to, to spatial maps that are produced of HIV prevalence, these are a static pictures, so it's very hard to read off mobility from
0: these maps. Mm-hmm.
2: You know? That meets this other dimension. That's, I think that we feel very strongly based on our results. Um, and and another general lesson I think is that um, it just needs more empirical studies. Um, and and they're needed to predict the potential effects of intensity interventions more accurately. Um, right? I mean all starts working on the ground we had hypothesis the opposite before we started.
0: Yeah. And
2: and, and so so it also that the, you know, especially the new deep sequence phylogenetics analysis, they make such studies more straightforward um, because it's now possible to estimate the directional transmission much more directly than was, um, was possible before. Um, so, so for example, in, as part of the, the Pangea consortium, where, uh, we are currently analyzing transmission flows in and out of other high-HIV prevalence hotspots or uh, areas. Um, that are to the north of Rakai in Uganda. So these are all fishing community, communities, a very similar setup. And, and I can say that the results that we find so far there, um, in the communities that are surveyed by the, the MRC and the UBMI group, they support the findings um, in Rakhai. Right. And they suggest okay. that our results that we presented right now here, we are likely to extend um, beyond just the district district and, district and, and Uganda.
0: Thank you both so much for joining me today on the Lancet HIV podcast. It's been great to speak to you and to get your insights into this study and to learn a little bit more about, um, you know, RACAI, this very important research site uh, for HIV. Um, So, yeah, thank you both very much. Thank you, Peter, for having us. My pleasure.